Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? Oh, Jack, I am well, rested, ready to go, coffee in hand. Let's do this. All right, sounds good. Now, you might notice something a little bit different about me today. The audience might, you might... My wife has listened to a few of these podcasts, and she said I yell too much. I'm too loud. Too enthusiastic. She didn't say too enthusiastic, but I express my enthusiasm sometimes through volume. So I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to chill out a skosh. Not too much. Not too much. But we'll see how it goes. I don't want to blow anyone's eardrums out here. So, uh, wow. so I just wanted to tell you that beforehand. I didn't want you to think I wasn't feeling well. I'm trying to be responsible. I'll say one other thing. I can take critique. I don't mind taking critique. I enjoy critique. But my God, when my wife critiques me, yeah, I know. it hurts in a special kind of way. <laughs> when my wife ever listens to anything that I do, forget it. And and I'll be at church on Sunday doing audio, and she'll give me her feedback uh-huh. literally when she gets home. I thought something was, I'm like, okay, dear. Yes, dear. Thank you, dear. That's much nicer than me. She said, Jack, you're too loud. I said, your face is too loud. <laughs> Wow. But she knows that. So what, can you move back in? <laughs> no, we're good. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. Enough about that. Now, it is starting to get a little chilly out in the morning, and I take back, I have to say, what I said last week, that I was a little bit sad that summer's coming to an end. I'm actually pretty happy about it now that we're here. Fall, as you pointed out, is awesome. The fishing's good. Hunting season is in. I'm just ready for fall. Now, John, I, I don't know that I've asked you this. Do you, are, do you fish or hunt, or have you ever? Do you do that kind of thing? I have done both before. I'm not the best fisherman or hunter. Uh, both my brothers uh, were officers of the of the law, and they're much better shots than me. But I love to shoot, you know. Yeah. I, but I do say, Jack, that I'm I'm the one who shoots off my mouth. So that's <laughs> that kind of covers me. But all right, very yeah, good. Yeah, but it's it's great to get outside. It's so nice out. That crisp fall air, especially for the big man like me. Yeah, it feels good. Well, I can guarantee you'll be hearing my updates throughout the fall and and winter, so I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. We should go out hunting together. Yeah. I'm all for it. I would love it. Now, I mentioned last week that I was going to a NASCAR race, so I wanted to give a quick update on that. It was awesome. It always is. We thought it was going to be rained out, but they got the race in. It It was a great race, but any race at Bristol is. Now, Folks, if you've never been to a NASCAR race and want to check one out, if you can get to Bristol. Have you ever been yeah, to Bristol? Many times. It but is the best. In my former life, we used to do the Bristol night race. So I've okay. been there. Great people. And we used to have Charlie Dan used to say, it's Bristol, baby. Yeah. That's such a great place. I've been to a bunch of tracks, and I think that it is my favorite. It's probably the fifth or sixth time I've been there. Now, that brings me to what I want to talk about today. That Tom Pyle discussion from last week still has me fired up. Or to please my wife, has me fired up. Um, I just can't believe that these guys are trying to take our cars away. And it seems like hardly anyone knows about it. People aren't really talking about it in those terms. We need to keep getting the word out on this. So everyone, just to bring you back to last week, check out Tom's, the thing, Tom's uh, heading up, savecars.org, to learn more about the effort that Tom's leading and that we discussed last week so so when you go to the herded heritage the power hour podcast feed and please subscribe and share you definitely want to check that in other past episodes out yes and that brings us good segue to our housekeeping um first our email address reach out to me a lot of folks have been we're going to have some upcoming episodes that i think that people have been emailing are going to be happy with so that's the power hour at heritage.org the power hour at heritage org shoot me an email i need to hear from you i love the the feedback negative or positive i want to give you all the best show that i can if you like what we're doing let us know if we can do better let us know that at the power hour at heritage.org now john 
Your yes. job is to tell folks where to find us. Once again, it is go to Heard It Heritage, The Power Hour. Just put that in your search engine. It'll take you to any one of the podcast feeds you can find us. And please subscribe to the feed and share. Thank you. Very good. So there we go. Now, one other thing, folks, if um, we're going to have future episodes, one on uh, an element of nuclear power, a little bit of a different take than what we've what we've done before. So if you have questions on that, let me know. So I'm going to each week try to give people a little bit of a preview of what's coming up so we can get them involved in what we're doing. Good. Now, John, as I mentioned, I'm so fired up about this EV mandate that I'm just not done talking about it. And I hope you all are not tired of learning about it. John, did you know that EVs were invented before gasoline cars? No, I didn't. <laughs> they were. <laughs> wow. The first EV was invented in 1832. And by 1870, folks were driving them around. They, they were having some success. But then in 1886, the gasoline engine came along. Folks still like the EVs, actually, because apparently they were hard to start. They were expensive. <laughs> But then our good friend Henry Ford, not the government, Henry Ford, he figured out how to make cars less expensive and easier to start. By 1835, gasoline engines dominated the day. And they did so not because government chose, but because people did. The market. The market. Now, here we are today, and government's trying to choose for us. And I got to thinking, we need to go deeper on this. And we need just the right person to walk us through it. Who knows the politics, the technology, the legal issues? Who has the real public policy chops to dig deep on this issue? And most, the most important question of all, as you know, I only like to bring the absolute best people always, that I can always. to this podcast. Then it dawned on me, we have the exact right person right here at Heritage. I don't need to go out into the hinterland to find this person. We have him right here. This guy, he's worked in the Senate on the House side as a staffer. He's even worked in the executive branch with Dick Cheney. He's worked in the gas and oil industry. He's even had a legal career working in a, at, in a law firm and in the Northern District of Texas. But perhaps most important, he's held a number of positions, as I just alluded to, here at the Heritage Foundation, including his current job as executive vice president. That's who runs the place. Wow, I mean, that's impressive, you, that resume. Well, yeah. Just to be clear. Um, so anyway, I present to our Power Hour audience a longtime friend, one of the most decent people I've ever met in Washington or elsewhere for that matter, Mr. Derek Morgan. Derek, welcome to the Power Hour. I'm excited to be here, Jack. Thanks for that great welcome. And I noticed there was no hunting invitation for me. Is that because I worked for Cheney? <laughs> wow. That's a good one. Huh? That's a hard one to forget, by the way. <laughs> One of, my, uh, one of my favorite jokes is um, Dick Cheney's the only one who could shoot a lawyer in the face and then make him apologize. <laughs> That's good. Now, you'll notice I didn't invite John. John invited himself. Wow. <laughs> okay. It's gotten really cool in here all of a sudden. Cold, actually. No, I'm, I'm always looking for hunting buddies, so uh, I, I think we can all make that happen. Now, as we like to do on the Power Hour, we, we like to ease into our policy discussions. So the first thing I want to know is whether you are a summer or a fall guy. Boy, I like them both. Um, you know, summer, we our, our happy place is uh, southwest Virginia. So we go up there. Uh, we got an awesome farm there that we rent uh, from, you know, vacation rental by owner. And uh, we just love it. You know, we're up there in the, in the hills and the mountains all by ourselves on a cattle operation. Dog runs free. The dog's happy. Everybody's happy. So uh, that's our happy place, and that's a summertime thing. Now, do you do cattling while you're out there? Is that the right word? That's what we'll call it. <laughs> we don't. We don't have to do anything with the cattle. Okay. Uh, they have the whole operation going, you know, kind of all around you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dog does a fair bit of herding. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's uh, that's just part of the good fun. Awesome. So... How about fall? Do you... Fall's good. Yeah. Uh, fishing's better in the fall. And, yes. of course, hunting season's in the fall. So yeah. uh, there's good things about fall as well. Uh, I don't like the days getting shorter. And um, you've probably noticed that. It's just a lot. It's dark when I come in. Yeah. A lot of times dark when you leave. And that reminds me of high school when I was playing basketball. I never saw the sun because <laughs> you had basketball practice. You never got to see the sun. Yeah. So that's the, that's the bummer of uh, fall. But, you know, every season, I, I guess I'd like to say I'm pro-climate change. <laughs> I love summer as, and to right. fall as and the, to winter and to spring and then back to summer. I think climate change is fantastic. As nature dictates. That's right. 
Now, I'm going to ask you something controversial here. I didn't mean to get into this particular issue, but it's controversial among even conservatives, maybe mm. specifically conservatives. Where are you at on daylight savings time? I'm again it. Um, I, I don't care for it. You know, being I'm, my kids are a little older now. My youngest is 11. But the time changes just play havoc when you have little kids. And I think we ought to be looking at ways to make it easier to have a family, not harder. So this is where it gets. I don't know that that is controversial amongst conservatives. But what is, is what you should pick to stick with. Some conservatives who I'm not going to mention any names because it's we don't need that kind of heat around here. <laughs> um, would like to stick with daylight savings time and just make that the thing. Yeah, I, I versus, don't care. Just pick one or the other yeah, and okay. don't change it. That's my thing. Pick that's, one. A little, that's a little bit of a squishy position, but okay. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and I've been called squishy before. <laughs> no, uh, just kidding. I'm an early morning guy. Uh, so, so, you know. Uh, so you let me um, appeal to you to not take the, day, the stick with daylight savings time perspective, okay. which is the one that's often proposed on the Hill by some conservatives. That what you want, be, being a morning guy, is standard time being what we stick with forever because daylight savings time is what gives you less light in the morning. Standard time, if you're an early riser, mm -hmm. gives you daylight earlier. So I, I think that God created the spin of the earth and the rotation the way he did, <laughs> for the reason he did, and that we should not bias against God because certain people want to sleep in. I mean, that would be my position. Uh, you know, I could, I could sign up to that. All right. All right. Now, if we offended anyone, obviously we're, we're having a joking conversation, but I stand I, by exactly what I just, but, what uh, I just said. Yeah, and, for, and just to throw in here really quickly, it drives me crazy because being a broadcast guy for so long, I'm stickler to correct time, and every time it changes, I have to change all the clocks. Then I have to fight my daughter and my wife to actually let me change the clock in the car. It's fine. I know yeah. it's an hour off. Right. It's driving me nuts. It, it'll yeah. be right in six months. Yeah, th that's what they say. I, I hate the whole time change thing. And it's a lot of it, as I understand. Understand it. I'm not an expert, but it's a lot of government scoring where they say how much energy can be saved uh, if you change the clocks. And I just think that's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't realize that, but that makes sense. And now I'm even more for not changing it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you've had a really diverse career. We talked a little bit about that. I was wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes and tell us about sort of your journey, how you got here today. Let people know who you are, why you're here. I always like to introduce folks to our guests. Yeah, uh, well, um, I'd say I've always been interested in policy, loved uh, Ronald Reagan, as a lot of people in my generation grew up listening to him, inspiring, uh, I think brought out uh, the best in our country, called us to our highest aspirations. So he was very inspirational to me. And I kind of always knew I wanted to do policy. So I uh, went to school at University of Texas at Dallas, near where I grew up, and then came to Georgetown for law school, knowing I wanted to do public policy. And uh, really, it's been, I've had awesome opportunities um, going to D.C., took a great class with a professor who later hired me to work for Dick Cheney. Uh, I got to work in the Justice Department during law school uh, for uh, Viet Den, who's a great uh, American, and um, uh, doing judicial nominations for President Bush. And then just kind of one thing led to the other, worked for Vice President Cheney for four years, came here to Heritage, worked in the Senate a couple times. Uh, even before I came to D.C., I got to work for Phil Graham of Texas. And, you know, one thing, Jack, that's a little sad is I talk a lot to our interns every semester, and it's now to the point where nobody knows who Phil Graham was. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the parents do, but the kids don't. It just goes to remind you, I mean, he was a big deal. Yeah. Senate banking chairman, ran mm -hmm. for president, raised more money than anyone else in history at that time. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a great economist. We just had him back actually a year ago. He wrote a new book. We had him back here at Heritage, had him sign my Graham for President oh, yeah. sweatshirt. So nice. got that thing framed and up on the wall. But anyway, it's just it's been a it's been a, a great ride and being here at Heritage has been a huge part of it. Now how is I I've known you for a long time and we've known each other because of your interest in energy issues. And mm -hmm. I've been doing energy issues here forever. Why has energy always been an important part of what you're doing? Well, I don't know how much you believe in names having a meaning and all of that kind of thing, but I'm from Texas, and my name is Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K. <laughs> so oil was inevitable. You okay. know, energy was inevitable. It really started in the Cheney office. I was his uh, staff secretary, so I got his briefing book ready every day. It was the last one to look over remarks, um, memos, weighed in with the rest of the White House. That was my day job. 
And the issues that he really cared about a lot on foreign policy, national defense, certainly being a former secretary of defense, but also energy. He knew the energy business. He had been CEO at Halliburton. And so I got to really pitch in on energy issues there and learned a lot from my good friend, uh, Chase Hutto, who uh, today is, uh, runs uh, Clearview Energy Partners and uh, is an energy analyst. And so that was the start of my energy life. And then after the administration ended, me and 6,000 of my closest friends all lost their job at the same time and horrible economy. I was scrambling around for work and was extremely fortunate to land in the Republican Policy Committee doing energy work because of the energy work I had done for Cheney. So that kind of set me on the path. And, and at that time, I basically had two jobs, stop cap and trade and stop card check, the labor bill, if you remember. And yeah. uh, thankfully, we went two for two because both of those would have really drastically changed the country. Now, when you were in Cheney's office, that was when the Energy Policy Act of 2005 was being developed. I hope you were involved with the good half of EPAC 2005 and not the horrible half that we're still dealing with today. That is correct. There are, <laughs> there are parts of that uh, law that were bad. The start of the uh, RFS, I would argue, is not a good step, although it was extremely modest at that time. But that's how things happen, Jack. You mm -hmm. start a program, you're not going to get smaller. Right. You're going to build up a constituency. They're going to lobby. They're going to get it bigger. So that's what happened in 2007. 2007, the conservatives, the Republicans actually had lost the majority in 2006. Nancy Pelosi, the new speaker, and she came in and supercharged that thing. Uh, and the 2007 Energy Act was was horrible. And um, yeah, we, we were uh, definitely not happy with uh, what happened there. And that's when they uh, really increased the, uh, the RFS. They started with a lot of the green subsidies. That's kind of how we got Solyndra and all the rest. And so, you know, it just goes to show you got to be extremely careful on the front end when you're thinking about new government programs because they're not going to get smaller if history's any guide. Yeah, we spent a lot of time here on the podcast talking about how a lot of the stuff, a lot of the policies that we talk about here are rooted in these statutes that are many decades old yes. in some cases that maybe arguably – at the time, made some sense, though I would have argued at the time they didn't. But right. one can see sure, sure. there's a, 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 a rationale behind them. And they are never carried out ultimately to do what they were originally meant to do. It's a real problem. And the Supreme Court's finally starting to pull the reins back on this because you have uh, congressmen that aren't really doing their job. Number one, they're, they're trying to do too much. Government's just way too big. It's trying to do too many things. Right. But if, it, if government is going to do something, our founders wanted it to be in Congress, to be debated, to have the diverse views from different regions of the country, certainly uh, from different ideological perspectives and come up with something that can weigh all the positives and all the negatives and come up with a decent policy. Instead, they kind of kick the can. They say, we want clean air. EPA, you go figure it out. Right. And you have these very vague laws that then transfer all that legislative power to the executive branch. And that's two problems there. Number one, the president isn't as in control of that as he should be as the accountable elected head of that uh, branch. Uh, and number two, you have kind of rule by experts. They tend to be very uh, left leaning, unfortunately, uh, through you know, all kinds of reasons we can get into if you want to. But what you have then are EPA bureaucrats not accountable to anybody, uh, maybe have never set foot on uh, a farm or a ranch in Colorado uh, telling telling you what the waters of the U.S. rule means. Nor or, nor have they tried to raise uh, children or on their own in low income communities. Absolutely. Or you know, <laughs> or you you know, you have uh, this uh, cockamamie idea that sounds pretty good in the Princeton faculty lounge that we can change from an internal combustion engine to an EV fleet, and right. it might cost us a little money, but with enough subsidies and enough. Uh, sticks, um, you know, we can we can make it happen, and it's just it's not going to work. It doesn't work for working people. Right, people that are they got they're in their truck. They're uh, got a landscaping business. I mean, California went so far. Not only do they want to get rid of internal combustion engine trucks and cars, off-road equipment, yeah, lawnmowers, leaf blowers, edgers. I can tell you. I mean, I've got a decent sized yard. Uh, I'm I'm ready to throw away my electric powered uh, tremor. It's just, it's useless. <laughs> like just by the time you're halfway through the job, it dies. Right. You know, I want, I want a gas one that I can pull the string and go, but in California, you're not gonna be able to do that either. Yeah. So how are you supposed to run a landscaping business? Yeah. You're going to have, uh, you know, a, a huge electric truck 
hauling around all that heavy equipment. The F-150 uh, Lightning, they just did a test, can't even make it 100 miles right. pulling a trailer. Right. So the, that's frustration number one. Then you're going to have mowers out there with electric batteries. That isn't going to last long either. How are you going to make it possible for folks that are hardworking, wanting to go out there and, and build a landscaping business or a cleaning business or uh, taxi cab drivers? They tried to do that in D.C. They tried to push electric vehicles toward taxi drivers. And they are extremely frustrated by the whole thing because they're sitting at chargers, which even in California, one-third of them don't work at any given time. Mm-hmm. They're out of order. Uh, and when they do work, it's usually not at that advertised supercharger rate, which, by the way, the manufacturer tells you you're not supposed to use very often if you want your battery to last long. Mm-hmm. And under the prime conditions, these batteries are supposed to last 12 to 15 years. The average car today is more than 12 years old. So there's a lot that are 24 years old. So you got a, a car that lasts half as long. It's completely inconvenient. If you're a taxi drive, cab driver trying to make a living, you're sitting at the charger. You're not, gonna, you're not making any money. Uh, so it's just not going to work for working people at all. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the lost issues in all of this that – the the so-called experts that you mentioned earlier, and by the way, we used air quotes. I put them around <laughs> experts for myself, and I'm also yes. giving them to to Derek for Thank when you. he used it. Yes, please put those back. <laughs> Let's reverse that, John, if we can, and if you can put in the sound effects of air quotes. It's done already. Done. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's when you subsidize something the way they are, the way they are doing. You don't get the consumer product that ultimately they say they want because those products aren't forced to compete in the marketplace, which diminishes the incentive to build charging stations that work, to build cars that last longer, to build to do all of the things that EVs may well be able to do, but they never will because they're using these subsidies. So then you end up with char- a charging infrastructure that government mandated, half of which doesn't work. You end up with cars that go to meet a government mandate rather than a consumer demand. Yes. It's the same thing across the board, That's right. whether it's wind or solar or whatever. Yep. Whenever government mandates these things, you're never going to get an industry that's robust and competitive and sustainable. That's right. And, you know, you brought up the, the um, EVs in the beginning. They were actually the majority of the market before the Model T. They had some advantages. Very clean, easy to start. Uh, you know, they had a lot of advertising around cities that this was the clean way to go and all of that. Uh, and then you, you pointed out that uh, Henry Ford came up. It was actually the electric start. So technologies can work together right. and, and really work well. You know, I'd, I'd say hybrid vehicles are, are great. If you, if you are ha- you know, happy with the performance, it can extend your range and all the rest. But, yeah, your, your subsidy point is exactly right on. If you leave these uh, technologies alone, a lot of times they'll develop better and faster. Right now they're, they're, um, they're crutches. Right. And just taking a 30,000-foot level, if you're on the left, the two ways that they can get their goal from moving from fossil fuels to renewables, and that's their goal. It's not about cleaning the environment. It's, it's that. They want to change the fuel supply. They can do it with sticks, and they can do it with carrots, and they're using both. They have to be careful with the sticks because people don't want to pay more. So it's not going to be anything that's obvious most of the time. They have to do it in an underhanded way. So the way that they do it is through these mandates that are years out, so that you don't draw the ire of people, right? The gas stove thing, it was like, you're banning my stove? Like, that's going to happen tomorrow? With cars, it's, oh, 2020, 2035, and by then, EVs are going to be better, blah, blah, blah. So they, they kind of, they they make that part easy. And then they, they're not doing 100% right away. California is, by the way. But uh, at the federal level, they're not. What happens is uh, car companies, you think of like Stellantis. Uh, we know them as Chrysler and Ram and Jeep here in the U.S., you know, they're selling Jeeps, they're selling Ram pickup trucks, and until last year, they were selling Challengers and Chargers, those awesome muscle cars. Unfortunately, they've gone the way of the Dodo Bird because of these regulations, I would say. But they had all these awesome cars. They didn't have a lot of fuel-efficient cars, so they had to go and buy credits from Tesla. That's how Tesla makes almost all of its money, is from these credit sales. And the, the customer doesn't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. And so you have this massive wealth transfer. When you go buy a Ram 1500, you're actually going to subsidize a car for your, your neighbor who's buying a Tesla Model S for their most likely their third or fourth car. It's kind of a toy, which is EVs are pretty good for that. They're fun. Instant mm-hmm. torque. That's a good toy to have. Uh, but it's not a workday vehicle. It's not going to be your primary vehicle for most people. So that's the way they do the sticks. And then the carrots is all subsidies, which is just somebody else's money. Right. It's, it's your daughter's money. It's my son's money. It's borrowed money. 
uh, and what really chaps my heart, and here I'm going to probably be um, uh, rebuked by your wife for, for yelling too much, <laughs> is it's all going to benefit China. Right. They have over, you know, 60 to 80% of the batteries are coming from China. They have a near monopoly on the processing of the raw materials. They have control of almost all the raw materials in Africa and China. And all of these subsidies are going to help them, just like they did with solar panels, just like they did with wind. And that really chaps my eye. And you've got, uh, you know, hardworking, a lot of unionized people or non-union. You know, I think of uh, Toyota headquartered in my hometown in, in Texas. They got plants in Texas or... A lot of these foreign um, nameplates have, have factories all over the South building internal combustion engine vehicles. And I, EVs take a lot less labor. Not a lot less, but about 30% less. And there's going to be a lot fewer jobs. And that'd be fine if there was a customer demand. We would figure it out. Um, you know, yeah, but I mean, that, that's, that's the... fine. But the, the problem is you're forcing this through a regulation right. that's going to kill jobs and benefit China. It makes no sense. Right. The, the, the jobs thing is an important issue because it gets thrown around. And it's often the case, it's, it's not described holistically, that if you have a properly functioning economy and you become more efficient in one process, and the result of that is fewer specific jobs because productivity per person increases, then in a properly functioning economy, you then take those human resources and apply to, to, to something else, yeah, that's and right. that's how the economy grows. That's right. And what the administration doesn't tell us what you just described, whether it's our dependence on China, whether it's killing jobs, all of these things are not because the market's functioning. Correct. It's because they've put restrictions on mining, yep. on mineral development, yep. uh, their labor policies are restrictive. Yep. All of these things make it so that when they do something that kills jobs, that just puts people in a horrible situation. That we, it does. It, it, and, and in addition to all of those things... They created a, a system of education where it's virtually impossible for people to, to affordably get educated. Mm -hmm. um, education is out of reach for most people. Mm -hmm. So they create this system where we'll give you money. Now we'll put you in debt. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we, we won't have a – we won't allow the market to help us as individuals, as, as young Americans who are trying to figure out our way in life – that helps us weigh the pros and cons of different things because I'm told that just go get in a college education right. no matter what. Right. So I, I, I don't have to pay for I, I don't I don't pay the full cost of it. I don't have the economic benefit of understanding that a Ph.D. in English lit might give me a different uh, career horizon than a a a you know, a, 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 an engineer or something an engineer. Like right. Well, you're exactly right. And this, uh, this is another little, uh, soapbox of mine. Uh, one, one of the reasons I love the free market is for exactly the reason you're talking about. When you're determining what you're going to do with your life, you want to think about what motivates you and then what's useful. Right. The market is what communicates what's useful. And so, uh, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player, but since you, nobody's watching this, I'm five <laughs> eleven on a good day. Right. And so that wasn't going to happen. The market communicated to me that I should find something else to do. Right. And uh, it actually helps me to be able to better serve my neighbor when I get feedback as to what I'm doing is valuable. And this is why one of the things with the Green New Deal, it's all wrapped together with this. You might remember this. The leaked copy of the Green New Deal that came out from AOC's office said that they wanted to provide support for people not willing to work. Nancy Pelosi said... You know, this is going to uh, – Obamacare and the subsidies are going to free people to do what they want to do. You know, you think of uh, an artist who, who wants to be an artist. Well, that's great, but if there's no one that wants to buy your artwork or if you don't happen to be the president's son, uh, you might have to find a new line of work, right? That was a joke. I think John got it. Uh, you know, Hunter, a good one. Maybe Hunter Biden is a good artist. I don't know. I, you know, you have to bring Victoria Coates on the podcast to analyze that. But We will in a few weeks. All right. Terrific. But in other words, the market really communicates that. Right. So it helps you find what you're interested in doing and what's useful to somebody else. And right. so uh, we've got right now, we, and the market is um, speaking to us, you have a lot of people making internal combustion engine cars that people want to buy. Right. And they're trying to force people to buy EVs that a lot of people don't want to buy through all of these subsidies. I mean, I counted them up one time. There were five different ways they were subsidizing EVs. 
They're trying to add another under the renewable fuel standard. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the renewable fuel standard to begin with, but part of the reason of that was energy independence. We wanted to grow corn to turn into ethanol to reduce the amount of oil at the time that we had to import. Now, you know, we're in a much different situation. But all that to say, it was a liquid fuels program. And now they're doing what's called ERENs. They've produced, they've, uh, they've proposed this, ERENs. Mm -hmm. And this will give some of the credits to the automakers when they build an EV. And then the oil refiners are going to have to go and buy those credits from the auto manufacturers. Just another way to subsidize it. And, the, the, you know, it's like Ronald Reagan used to say about the economy. If it moves, the government's view of the economy. Right. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. And that's exactly what they're doing on energy. Um, going back to the NASCAR discussion we had earlier, there was a one of the things I like to do when I go there is go around to all the stalls and you know mm -hmm. see what people are selling. And this one uh, stall was selling this Reagan shirt. Had a great picture of Reagan on it. Um, a very masculine, uh, ornery looking Reagan uh -huh. asking the question from his lifeguard days, probably. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but they put a suit on him. Oh, okay. Uh, asking, uh, the, the shirt said, if the answer to the question is more government, then it's a stupid question. <laughs> so it was a great shirt. That's pretty good. Yeah. Have you ever gone to an e-racing race? They have these now. <laughs> no. Uh, it was hilarious. I don't, I don't remember if it was the first one. It was one of the first ones. The first one I ever heard about because the two leading racers both ran out of fuel. <laughs> and they were so just good. stopped on awesome. the track. So. That's hilarious. Hey, yeah. and I had a quick question, Derek. You mentioned about car average car life is 12 years i think another issue and i'm not an expert either air quotes is that if you have to replace like rebuild an engine gas engine is one thing you have to replace the batteries i mean there's thing floating around like twenty thousand bucks or something just yes. to replace batteries you're right and and john i remember you and your your dad used to put engines in cars was that you or is that tom that maybe was, that was no tom. with me yeah it was you okay yeah yeah uh and yeah i mean you can you can you can do that relatively inexpensively with an internal combustion engine. With an EV, you got to start all over. Uh, these batteries should last, air quotes, uh, 12 to 15 years. That's what they're hoping. But that's kind of under optimal conditions. Get a load of all the things that they tell you. You shouldn't let it go below 15%. You really shouldn't charge it more than 85%. You don't want to expose it to cold temperatures. Uh, you don't want to use supercharging too much. These are all things that they tell you. Uh, in fact, um, you know, in the range can be impacted too. For uh, the AAA did a study on this, and in cold weather, I think it was twenty degree weather, using the heater, you lost forty percent of your range. Oh, jeez! In fact, Tesla, in their own uh, instruction in their uh, manual, they tell you uh, to get better range, we recommend that you just use the seat heaters and not the heater. <laughs> so, how's that going to work in Minnesota? Right. How's that going to work in New York? How's that going to work in Montana? No, it's not going to work out. It's not even going to work out in Texas in the winter, I'll tell you, because we like our we like to be comfy down there. So uh, it's just it's absurd. And um, you know, you look at the the, the charging problems that they've had. Uh, you know, a government-run program is never going to work well. And you had the VW's settlement and then dispersed to state. It's just a total disaster. The Tesla network's probably a little better, uh, but even throwing them all together, there was a study done that over a third of them are out of order at any given time in California. I'll tell you, a, a family member of mine who I won't name, protect uh, you know, protect the guilty, uh, bought an EV, and it's fun, instant torque, uh, works for what they need it. But I uh, got to air quotes uh, refuel this thing a couple times, and it was so frustrating. Took it to you know, it was probably 15 miles away to the closest one at Walmart. And there was always at least one of the six or so stalls that was broken. Everybody would complain to one another. That was the thing you do is because what do you else? I mean, you could go into Walmart. I did that, actually. I love shopping at Walmart. But, uh, the you know, people just grouse to each other like, yeah, is yours working? No, no. Mine's at 30 percent of what it's supposed to be. And people would just complain to one another. And we're all just like shaking our heads like this is not good. And, uh, you know, that the data bears that out. And so, uh, you know, let this thing develop naturally. Let the Teslas of the world, absent all the government subsidies, figure this out, and that's fine. But right. forcing everyone into the same box is not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. I want to go back to something you said earlier because you used a, a, a term that I don't know that folks know, um, ERINs. Yes. Can you tell us what ERINs are? Yeah, so the RFS is based on renewable identification. Numbers. And the RFS is the re renewable fuel standard. That's right. That 
It's President Bush eth- signed it into law. It's the ethanol. Yes, um, that's what it's mostly program. known for. But it was supposed to be. Uh, you know, I worked in this administration, but the president would talk about switchgrass. Right. That this was going to be the next thing. Uh, that we grow all this switchgrass. We're never going to need oil and gas again. Okay. Well, that didn't quite work out. Uh, so that was supposed to be the biggest part of RFS. Instead, it's tiny, very tiny, very expensive fuel. But ethanol actually has become 10% of the fuel supply. And if we took away the RFS tomorrow, it would remain 10% of the fuel supply. It's actually less expensive. Um, and now the infrastructure is built out, so it kind of makes sense. Um, by the way, I think people ought to be able to buy the amount of ethanol that they want in their gas. It shouldn't be mandated. But right. setting that aside, now what they're trying to do is is expand the program. Again, government programs start small, and then you add special interest in, and then it gets bigger, and then the people that run the program have a bigger program. There's all these incentives. We know this as conservatives. And so now what they're trying to do are E-RENs. So the the whole of this program comes down to oil refiners have to pay at the end of the year, they have to turn in enough rents. If they refined, uh, you know, a billion gallons of gasoline over the year, then they have to turn in a billion rents. So normally they're buying these from the people that are blending ethanol into gasoline uh, or biodiesel is another one, um, which biodiesel has some, some drawbacks. We can get into that if you want. Uh, but now, they're going to increase the number of RENs required and give RENs to auto companies for building EVs. And then the refiners are going to have to turn around and buy those E-RENs from the auto manufacturers. And guess what? They're not going to do it out of the goodness of their heart. They're going to pass along the cost to their customers, right. which is what they do with the RFS. And so uh, gasoline costs more. And nobody knows about this. I mean, we hardly know there's an 18.4 cent tax, uh, federal tax on gasoline. And places like Pennsylvania, over 50 cents a gallon tax because it's all just the number up on the on right. the sign, right? And so there's all of these costs that are hidden to consumers because of government programs. And RFS is one of the one of the ones that's the most annoying. And it's even worse now that they're taking a program that was supposed to be help with energy independence, help rural communities, and now they're going to give e-rens to auto companies who are partnering with China to build batteries at the best if they're not just buying the batteries straight out from China. Because the government won't let us mine that stuff here. I know. I know. You know, uh, the Chamber of Commerce back, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade or two ago, had a project, no project, they called it. And their point was, it's not just fossil fuel projects that environmental greens are stopping. It's renewable projects and mining. I don't know how they think they're going to get all this lithium. We have one lithium mine in the United States, less than 2% of the global supply. It takes more than a decade to get these things permitted. Uh, we're just going to be completely reliant on other countries, especially China. And that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Now, uh, before we move on from the ERINs, is it, you're a lawyer. You you understand these things from a l- legal perspective. That seems legally... Dubious? Not, yes. <laughs> not right. Yes. Because, you know, you have a, renew, a, a, a liquid fuel program, yeah. and you're using that program for something that is specifically not liquid fuel at all. Yeah, we could get way into the weeds here if you want to. Um, One of the other ways the RFS was expanded in a way that's a little dubious was for natural gas vehicles. Uh, And this was um, methane emissions captured from landfills that are then used in the vehicle fleet. And we have no way of really tracking that. With ethanol, you have a way to track it. You have a gallon of ethanol blended in to, you know, nine gallons of gasoline. You can track that. You can issue the REN. Uh, You don't really have that with that natural gas pathway. Uh, And ERENs, they've been talking about this for a long, long time, but neither the Obama or the Trump administration moved forward because it's just, it's impossible to track. And who do you give the REN to? You could give it to the uh, utility that's transmitting the electricity. Uh, You could give it to the consumer when they fill up at the, or not fill up, when they charge at the charge point. Or you give it to the car manufacturer. I think uh, I don't. I don't have a lot of hard evidence here, but what I do know is that the auto companies were, and frankly, I don't think they were standing up for their customers with the fuel economy regulations, with the EV mandates that uh, Obama did, and then now Biden is doing. They kind of went along with the program with the promise that they were going to get a whole bunch of subsidies to make this happen. Mm-hmm. You see this in all their statements. They say, "Well, we don't think this is a really good idea," but. Uh, they won't emphasize that part. They'll say, we have to have massive subsidies to make this work. We have mm-hmm. to build, we, meaning you, the government, meaning you, the taxpayer, mm-hmm. you, the listener, have to pay out the charging network, which we can get back into that if you want. 
There's all kinds of bad things happening there. Also, you have a lot of utilities that are trying to make everybody pay more for their electricity mm -hmm. to build out the charging structure. It mm -hmm. ought to be the people that are fueling up that pay that. Right. Last time I checked, we didn't, you know, the government didn't build gas stations. Uh, but all that to say, um, now they're trying to say that if you have an electric vehicle, that reduces the amount of oil, which is broadly in line with what they were trying to do with the RFS. And because of that, and then they, they say, we're going to give the RIN based on an estimate of how many miles these cars are going to drive as to how much fuel they're uh, displacing, and we're going to give them RINs. But I think it was partly because they gave that huge stick to the auto companies. They're not making money on these cars. Ford says they're losing, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars on each one of these EVs that they sell. Uh, so they're trying to make it up to them in any way they can. They passed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, air quotes, and uh, for massive subsidies, and then they're trying to make it up for them with e-rents too. And the car manufacturers are trying to make up some of that money with higher prices on the cars that people do want. They have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they you, go buy a pickup truck. Right. Right. Or uh, look at the Corvette. Awesome engineering marvel, by the way. If you're a GM guy like Tom Pyle is, <laughs> uh, you know, you used to be able to get a Corvette for, you know, two thirds of what you can get for it now. Mm -hmm. It's just gone way, way up. It's V8 engine. It's tough. Trucks, same way. Uh, a lot of the bit, now the full size trucks, some of them are dropping V8 engines altogether, mm -hmm. turbocharging sixes. Uh, some of that's fine. Um, you know, the, the private sector can figure out ways to mitigate right. government stupidness a lot. But you're not going to be able to buy a Charger, a Challenger, a you know a V8 sedan. Uh, those were starting to get super expensive, and that's just the thing is like the really rich people will still be able to afford these vehicles, but uh, John, John and I we like our muscle cars. We're not going to be able to do that anymore. I know you too, Jack. Well, in fairness, they should have stopped making Dodge Chargers in 1970, probably. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we, that's a whole Pick different your car. discussion. Pick your car. Camaro, Mustang, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Oh, they should have stopped making them all in 1970. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's when they. That, uh, that's some, meant to be a compliment. Like those cars are awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. I guess. And well, the Charger uh, is nice and it's cool, but you're right. It's it's basically a copy of the one from like 72 yeah. or 68. You know. Well, it so. took a long time for them to come back because those yeah. those were fuel economy casualties in the 70s yeah. when we were really dependent on foreign sources of oil and we had the oil embargo. We had shortages and all the rest. We're not in that situation anymore. Yeah. So why don't we give people some choices? And look, uh, there's just a lot to be said for a, a nice V8 pickup truck that you yeah. can haul a yep. trailer and not crawl at 20 miles an hour up a hill, right? Or only go 90, I think it was 94 miles they took this uh, F-150 Lightning with a full, you know, supposedly full charge. It started off with a 250-mile range, and then mm -hmm. it just... Yeah you know, uh, yeah. went down. So Hook up your boat and see how far you get with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, e even back then, you know, the in the 70s when we were dependent on foreign sources of oil and, and all that stuff, I still am hesitant to, to look back on the legislation and the policies that were put in place there think, and, and argue that they were the right things to do. I think it's always the case. I don't want to say always, though I think always, but I won't say always. That the market just sorts these things out more efficiently and better and leads you to a better place than what the government would otherwise do. Yeah. And I think the the electric vehicles is a perfect example. I mean, you've mentioned it a few times that these are they're cool cars, they're fun. Sure. But they're never gonna work out these kinks no. as long as government's mandating it. That's right. And I'm mean, thinking back to the seventies, think about a Honda and Toyota coming on the scene. Right. They hit what customers wanted. They wanted yeah. fuel efficient, reliable vehicles, and they cleaned Detroit's clock. And, uh, you know, Toyota is one of the few companies now that I think is, is trying to listen to customers uh, and, and help the environment at the same time. So they're really big into hybrids and plug-in hybrids. And um, yeah, hearing their thinking on it really is um, pretty persuasive. If you start with the standpoint of you want to reduce emissions, then you have to look at the totality of the resources that are available, particularly the number of batteries you can build. You could build one battery electric vehicle that has a 200, 300-mile range. It's carrying a huge battery, by the way, that for most use cases, you're just going back and forth to work. You're using you know, maybe 60 miles of the range or whatever. Uh, why not, instead of one battery electric vehicle, have five plug-in hybrid vehicles using the same amount of materials, and you're going to use that battery. It's not near as heavy. It's not near as big. You're going to use that for that short trip, mostly electric, and then you can switch over to the gas if you want to. But California and the federal government do not count plug-in hybrid electric vehicles mm -hmm. as electric. 
So they are going to be outlawed as well with mm-hmm. uh, on the two-thirds for on the federal level, which we haven't mentioned all that yet. The number's yeah. two-thirds by 2032. I want to I get to yeah. that. Yeah, and California's 100%. Yeah. And plug-in hybrids don't even count. Right. It's absurd. Yeah. Uh, but Toyota's got a great story on this talking about the scarcity of meat in post-war Japan, and that's where ramen noodles came up. You could have enough meat to feed one person a meat meal, or you could really spread it out with ramen noodles. And I thought that was a nice analogy. If, you, if, if the left was really concerned about environmentalism, they would look at those kind of solutions. But it's not. It's, it's a mission for them. It's uh, destroy the internal combustion engine, destroy fossil fuels in a, in a misguided uh, attempt to supposedly help the environment, which it really won't, which we can get into as And well. it's to control the economy, to, yeah, to, uh, to, con- to build power for themselves to advance their agenda. Yeah. And the the envi- it has nothing to do with the environment. Yeah, you know the the good work that um, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks that uh, Heritage does on economic freedom, showing without question the cleanest environments are those with the freest economies. Like if you want a clean environment, you want economic prosperity. Yes. Like that's the avenue. That's that's how you balance standards of living. That's Part right. of which is a healthy environment. That's but, right. So, so the Clean Air, Clean Air Act, which uh, was the law back in the late 60s to try to clean up the air, has been a really big success. They had six criteria pollutants. These are things that are actually really harmful to human health, not because they accumulate in the atmosphere and might change the weather like CO2, but we're talking about carbon monoxide, uh, at, you know, particulate matter, et cetera, uh, sulfur dioxide, et cetera. They're harmful to human health. At high, at, high, at, at certain yes. levels. Yes, that's right. At certain <laughs> levels. That's right. right. Uh, those levels have dropped 78% since 2000 because the technology is so much cleaner. Right. And we can afford that. And from a cost-benefit standpoint, it makes sense to do that. So the internal combustion engine has never been cleaner. Right. I mean, I'm not quite old enough, but I remember a little bit the smog problems we had uh, in the early 80s. And it's gotten so, so much better. And the internal combustion engine is very, very clean. Uh, and by the way, this whole getting rid of fossil fuels thing, I think of uh, Patagonia. You know that company out in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And they were pounding their chest that they were not going to make a uh, – they weren't going to make any outdoor equipment, any clothing for this oil and gas company. This is a great story. So the oil and gas company decided to run a billboard campaign thanking Patagonia for being such great customers. <laughs> you might say, well, how is that? Every single product that right. they produce – has fossil fuels in it. Yep. Every single one. It makes modern life possible. Two third, more than two-thirds of a windmill is made with fossil fuels. Yep. Solar panels, fossil fuels. EV, fossil fuels. They all have fossil fuels in them. There's no way in, in any time soon we're going to be getting off of fossil fuels. And so um, we need to mitigate any impacts that we can. We need to make sure that it's affordable, it's reliable, it's available. Um, but we we have to, you know, that, that's why I'm a conservative because there's always trade-offs. Right. You know, the, the left sometimes gets so carried away with a mission that they don't consider any of the trade-offs. And we've got to consider all of the trade-offs. We do. I think even conservatives sometimes, though, get caught up in the alleged negative impacts of hydrocarbons. The fact is, hydrocarbons, since we've begun using them in the 1700s, uh, st- people live way longer, way healthier, way healthier, way more prosperous. Yeah, way less poverty, way less poverty across Absolutely. the that. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't times throughout that evolution that the uh, environmental impact of that use didn't manifest itself in negative ways. Sure. But as the Cuyahoga River, it, yes, uh, we've read the stories. Yes, um, the river caught fire. Yes, yes. Not Although good. I sometimes Not hear good. allegedly, but okay, we well, can get into that another sure, time. Sure, I, sure. I don't. I, <laughs> that's the dark web show. Here's the. Here's the. <laughs> I don't trust anything that anyone. I mean, I trust what you say, but, but in in the that's broader a good natural skepticism, Jack. <laughs> in the broad social narrative of things, I just have a hard time believing anyone about anything. Yeah. But, well, here's the point, though. Um, for example, well, the, when, let me let me just say oil, one, yeah, one, one, one one quick thing. Sure. When these things happen, because we have the the desire to better our lives and the wherewithal to do it, we're able to address those things and move forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. And I think of the oil refining industry. Early on, it was uh, the the product you wanted was kerosene. 
for lighting. And it was a good product. So then electrification came along where people were using electric lights and the use for kerosene went in other directions, but no longer lighting. But gasoline used to be a byproduct you didn't really want uh, until a use was found for it mm -hmm. with the internal combustion engine. And you look today at uh, the, the things that we get from petroleum, from natural gas, et cetera, uh, you know, our clothing, uh, our plastics, uh, hair gel, just about everything you can think of has got petroleum in it one way or another, and it's made modern life possible, and it's right. a good thing. Right. And by the way, uh, climate change, whatever you think about that, climate-related deaths are down 98% right. in the last 100 years because we're wealthier. I would submit to you a, um, a flood is going to have a lot less impact if you have better building codes or, you know, et cetera. Uh, so even if you buy into the idea, which, by the way, the U.N. doesn't, that there's more natural disasters from climate change, even the U.N. doesn't believe that, right. uh, you want to be wealthier. You want to be able to withstand climate because the climate's going to be bad no matter what. There's always going to be climate problems, uh, challenges, hurricanes. We've had those for forever, right. well before fossil fuels. Um, so we need to be able to mitigate that with a wealthy uh, society. And nothing has been even close to remotely as helpful as fossil fuel energy, that dense energy. Uh, it's just, you, you look at the correlation between human welfare and fossil fuel use, and it's very, very tight. There, um, there are two things I want to make sure we cover before we uh, close up. First, we alluded to this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk through what's the, the legal basis of all this EV stuff? Like, how, how did we get, like, how are we in a place where government can, with a straight face and legally say, you can't buy a gas engine it, in 2035? It starts with uh, it, they couldn't pass a cap-and-trade bill. That's where it starts, the mid-2000s. And then when I was in the Senate, 2009, 2010. President Obama wanted to do that. He wanted to totally remake America, especially in banking, healthcare, and energy. He made big strides in banking and in healthcare, unfortunately for our country. They did not pass cap and trade. They didn't pass it when they had 60 Democrats in the Senate. They passed it through the House. I knew that thing was dead on arrival <laughs> because uh, I've forgotten the exact percentage of votes, but it was something like three quarters of the votes were from New York, New England, and the West Coast. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work in the Senate. Your Democrats from Montana and elsewhere in the middle of the country were not going to vote for that stinker because mm -hmm. it was going to make uh, life horrible in their states in particular, and they just weren't up with this green ideology. So you remember what President Obama said? He said, you can pass cap and trade, or I have a pen, and I have a phone. Right. That's where that came from, was from cap and trade, and he used his pen. He talked about multiple ways to skin a cat. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so they went back to that Clean Air Act, which was always about actual pollutants. It was never about global um, you know, CO2. And they went back and they said, well, we can stretch this thing. And so they started with power plants, the clean power plant. And they said, we want to, instead of just saying, uh, you got to use the best available technology that's reasonably affordable to reduce smokestack emissions, which is what the Clean Air Act has always done. They said, no, now we're going to regulate CO2 with the endangerment finding. We're going to say it's harmful to human health. And even. what's the endangerment finding? That is uh, the Supreme Court and Massachusetts versus EPA said the EPA had to decide whether or not CO2 was harmful to human health. Uh, it, it is not in any reasonable concentration at all, like harmful. In fact, we exhale it. Uh, plants need it. Um, it's it's not harmful, uh, but the theory is if it accumulates, it becomes a greenhouse gas, it warms the planet. We all know this, blah, blah, blah. So they said, yes, it is a danger under Obama. It is a danger to human health. And so then EPA, that triggered it, and they said, okay, right. even though it regulate. wasn't mentioned in the Clean Air Act, and certainly nobody had any idea about it, if anything, they thought there was global cooling back then, according right. to Time Magazine and all the experts, air quotes, it was global cooling back then. They had no idea. So then they, um, that's when he got his pen and his phone. I called up the EPA administrator and said, you will do this, and signed uh, this regulation that totally remade the electricity grid, even though Congress did not do cap mm -hmm. and trade. They were going to do it as much as they could. And thankfully, the Supreme Court uh, in West Virginia versus EPA uh, last, last term uh, said, you can't do that. This is a major question that Congress needs to address in our constitutional form of government. The lawmakers should do this, not a federal agency, mm -hmm. especially when Congress didn't give them that authority in a clear manner in the first place under the Clean Air Act. So that was tossed out. 
And so today, fast forwarding, they're using the Clean Air Act again, mm -hmm. but now instead of trying to remake the electricity fleet to go from coal and natural gas to renewables, they're trying to make our transportation fleet go from, from internal combustion into electric. It's almost the same exact thing. They got some of the same problems, and we're litigating that out. There's uh, three cases in the D.C. Circuit right now. One challenging California's absolute ban, a uh, waiver to get toward its absolute ban, one on the DOT under the CAFE requirements, and then one against EPA uh, that um, regulates tailpipe emissions under the Clean Air Act. And so uh, I think we, I think there's a decent chance that that litigation ultimately ends up successful. I don't think the D.C. Circuit is likely uh, to, to slap down the administration, but I think if it gets to the Supreme Court, there's a, there's a shot. Very good. Now, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, I want to ask you one last thing that is adjacent to the conversation we've been having. Gas prices are going up again, and the left likes to throw out there, it's not Biden's fault. We're producing more crude oil than we did under Trump. Could you talk us through real quick why that isn't the metric we should be thinking about or what is going on with gas prices? Just because I know that's something that folks will probably be thinking about. And being able to answer that question will be something that I think people will appreciate. Yeah. So uh, oil is a global commodity. Gasoline is pretty close to a global commodity. So there, these uh, prices are set worldwide. So we can produce more in the United States, and that would help because it would be more of a global production. But the fact is, at the end of the day, it's basically a global market. Now, some sources of crude oil are a little better. They're easier to refine. They're a little less expensive. But for the most part, it's a global market. And we're using more oil than we ever have in history, right. and that's going to continue to go up because developing countries want to be prosperous, and they need crude oil to do that. So demand is going up. It's basically flatlined in the United States. Uh, it's going probably on the way to going down in Europe now as they're moving towards electric vehicles and so forth. Uh, but the, um, the problem is that production is really being held back, especially in the United States. Permitting uh, on federal lands, um, the five-year plan for offshore drilling, all of that, the administration is dragging its heels. And then they're castigating the industry for not producing enough. Mm -hmm. it's, you can't make this stuff up. And then they're going to beg to dictators for them mm -hmm. to, to do uh, more production. And they're trying to make it easier to buy oil on the global market from Iran and from Venezuela. And they're really looking the other way with the Russians. They like to pretend they're not, but they're basically looking the other way with the Russians because they know if you take those Russian barrels off the market, it goes way up. So at, at the end of the day, what you have to do is not send all these signals that oil and gas is going out of business. Right. He said, oh, well, we're going to need it for 10 years. Okay. <laughs> Who's going to make these massive right. investments for uh, a limited runway? That's not going to happen. Right. And so if the government is going to put you out of business, why would you invest a bunch of money that you need decades to recoup all that big investment? That's the big problem is they're talking down the industry, doing all these regulatory impacts that are um, reducing production. Yeah, one one of the things that the left doesn't like to point out when they talk about we produce more today than we did four years ago or something, they don't talk about that we've had economic growth since mm -hmm. then, yep. which increases demand. They don't talk about how what you produce at a given point in time is relative to what demand is at that point in time. What we produced five years ago is irrelevant to what we produce today. And that if prices are going up, you will pr producers will produce more, regardless of right. what we produced five years ago. And that's what you want is the you want a market that is responsive yes. to prices going up and down. And they don't acknowledge that. They, they don't. They create this this false framework that helps advance their um, their agenda and leaves Americans um, uh, misinformed about what the issue actually is. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, we're not actually producing more than we ever have either because right. refining's way down. Right. Uh, COVID was tough on the industry for sure, but also the RFS put right. a number of uh, marginal producers out of business. And, uh, you know, the production's down uh, over a million barrels now, lower. And a number of these refineries are converting over to renewable diesel because of California and uh, because of the RFS. And so you have a plant that can produce say 150,000 barrels of petroleum now does 30,000 barrels of renewable diesel. So you're taking that, that throughput's gone way, way down. And that's all because of bad policies. Right. We have the best, most efficient refining in the world. We are the number one fuel exporter in the world. 
uh, if we didn't have all these bad government programs, we could be more energy dominant. Right. Derek, thank you. This has been great. I hope folks enjoyed the conversation. I hope you learned something. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out and email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, before we end, Derek, is there anything that you want to point people towards? Like, are you a a Twitter X guy or I lurk on X. I don't post much, yeah. but uh, you can check out heritage.org and, and look me up with uh, the, the things that I'm producing. And uh, I would just say at the end of this, it's really misguided and it's going to benefit China. Those are the number, you know, China is now the number one refining country in the world in terms of throughput. They're building two coal power plants a week. And we are begging them to just talk to us about climate change while they are cleaning our clock. Right. And we cannot have that. I think we should uh, stop talking to them about climate change and start us building two coal plants. I've decided, by here, the here. way, um, I should let you know this since ultimately you're my boss. I'm giving up my whole nuclear thing because <laughs> I like doing nuclear when people didn't like doing, doing nuclear. But now everyone likes nuclear. <laughs> I'm changing to a straight coal guy. There you I go. love it. I, uh, I think we need more voices for coal, and I want to be that voice. Love it. John, do you have any final words? Yes, quickly. Uh, with your great history of cars, I didn't realize that there was EVs before gas engines. I'm going to advocate for bringing back the Stanley Steamer. How about that? <laughs> go That's going to be my thing. John, go out and build one better than the other guys. That's and right. You can make it happen. That's right. I'll get busy right now. <laughs> so there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, John. Thank you, Derek. You're a great guest. We're going to have to have you back. Most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.